And welcome everyone to Beyond the Crucible, the podcast where we discuss crucible experiences, crucible moments, those things that are painful uh, setbacks, can be tragedies, can be traumas, can be failures. And we talk about them for the reasons of not uh, dwelling on them, not wallowing in them, but what we hope to have out of our conversations is to provide hope to the listener, provide insights to the listener on how you can come back from your own crucible moments, move beyond your crucibles, and then also action steps. What are some things you can do out of this conversation that you can then take with you to uh, live your own life of significance? And with me, as always, is the founder of Crucible Leadership and the host of this broadcast, uh, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, uh, we got a good conversation today. Absolutely. Good to be here and uh, great to have Craig with us. And I'm not sure if I introduce myself. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the uh, co-host of the show, as well as the communications director for Crucible Leadership. That's only so you know, listener, when uh, Warwick or somebody says Gary, who he's talking to. That's me. But more importantly is Craig, who Warwick um, did indicate there. And I'm going to introduce Craig. And one of the things, listener, that we do that's very uh, exciting and interesting for us is we ask every guest we have on to provide us a biography. Craig did that, and throughout the conversation, please don't think when I finish the last sentence of what Craig provided as his bio, that that's the end of Craig's story, and you'll hear through the conversation with Warwick that it's not. But I think what you'll glean from this is kind of the character of Craig and uh, where his heart lies in terms of his life of significance. So this is uh, Craig Perra's uh, biography as he gave us. Adopted as an infant into a loving Catholic family. Mom and dad tried their best. Mother was physically and verbally abusive. Dad worked his butt off from poverty to master's degrees to being a famous regional sports coach. This instilled in me a drive for success. Never feeling good enough was a powerful motivation. I met my current wife and soulmate Michelle in college at UConn. What followed? Lawyer, executive, fired two times, Liar, cheat, drug user, suicide attempt. That's the snapshot of Craig's life that will begin this discussion between the three of us. Warwick, take it away. Well, Craig, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You have a powerful story and love what you're doing with mindfulness, which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, But share a bit about your story and as that led into your crucible experiences. So, um, yeah, tell us a bit about Craig Perra. Sure. It it Craig is born in failure. When I got, you know, asked to be on this podcast, Warwick and Gary, I was so excited because I've literally built a career, um, a life around colossal failures, and um, they were big. The last one was on the heels of a failure. I was a um, back in Massachusetts where I used to live with my family about 12 years ago. I was assistant general counsel for a $3 billion company. And anyone who's done the corporate thing knows those are nice jobs. Lawyers really, really <laughs> like them. They have their own pressures, but not the pressures of private practice. Had an amazing boss and it was a great company, but I got fired. I got fired not because they caught me doing anything wrong. I got fired because I wasn't performing. Plus, I lied to my boss about something trivial. 
Uh, Craig, is that a coffee mug? No, boss, that's not the coffee mug. Are you sure that's not a coffee mug? I'm looking at it. It looks like one, Craig. He gave me 30 opportunities to answer a, a small, trivial question. And I'm literally, it wasn't about the mug, obviously. It was about, did I do something? No, I, no, I didn't do that. But are you sure? I'm positive you did. I, three people told me you did. You did. No, but I, I had gotten stuck in the lie. I just didn't have the courage to say, yeah, I goofed. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. That little, small, trivial, insignificant thing that would have been, uh, a, you know, a normal learning opportunity for normal people. So I get fired from that job. The come the comeback kid. I get a better job. I now am in charge of insurance's compliance department. I'm taking on a role and responsibility that I hadn't before. National responsibility. I'm leading a bigger team for the first time. And that was like literally like jumping off a cliff. And it was at that low point. I mean, I was so low. I tried to kill myself 10 months after getting fired from the first job. I got fired from my second job. I was out of my mind. I was using drugs. There was a scene in in, in one of the Christmas movies where Chevy Chase is intoxicated and he's shoving the salmon in his Santa coat and he's stumbling around drunk. I wasn't that bad, but there was one time where I was clearly under the influence at work. I mean, like, you know, I had a long, successful career. I didn't get to that that job where I would have, you know, if I continued to be successful, I would have been running the compliance department, chief compliance officer for a billion dollar a year company. And I hated my life. I hated the job. I did not get along with my boss. I wasn't I didn't see people around me that I wanted, you know, as mentors. I saw a lot of unhappy people and that that realization that here I am in California, I'm stuck. There's no way out. I stuck my face in a pile of bath salts. That's that synthetic chemical you might have read about 15 years ago where people were losing their minds. Now illegal, thank goodness. Um, you know, worse than PCP and meth put together. I thought that would be a good idea. And so I got addicted to that um, chemical. I did not kill myself, obviously. It was an unsuccessful attempt, more of a cry for help. But what that did is that forced me into getting help. And that's when things um, turned around in a pretty significant way. So I'll stop there to see if you have any questions and then I could, you know, keep going regarding the comeback. But um, I wanted you to see this, like I get fired and I'm screwed. What am I going to do? I'm a lawyer. I don't have a license to practice in California. I'm out in California. I'm stuck. I tried to find another job. There wasn't another employer that needed my skill set for 80 miles. I would have had to move again. I felt so trapped. I felt so trapped. I was so unhappy in so many aspects of my life. Um, I mean, I remember sitting in the car and, and pouring all the drugs out and just said, you know what? You know, if this does it, fine. Clearly a cowardly move and um, one I'm glad didn't work. But that was the low point. And I think one of the things you've said, um, which really amazes me, is on your website, you know, you are so open about, you know, all the challenges that you've been through. I mean, it just, it sort of blew my mind reading it, to be honest. It's like, wow, you lay it all out there. And one of the things you talk about, as well as in, you know, just some videos you've done, is your relationship with your wife. I think somewhere around that time was 
was in a pretty bad place. So talk a bit about, because it's getting fired, you know, and drug addiction and all is one thing, which is just horrendous. But then on top of all that, you know, your relationship with your wife and just for a variety of reasons, that was in a bit of a challenging space. I talk about that on top of everything else. It just felt like, you know, you were just hit with a tsunami of just different uh, challenges. Yeah. yeah, and so part of my coping strategy has always been as a man doing what quote unquote guys do, having affairs, lying, cheating. You know, I had rationalized clearly under the shined under the light of day, deviant behavior. But I had rationalized that for so, so, so long, you know, at the core was my heart. It wasn't anything my wife did. It wasn't anything that she could have done differently. You can't give what you don't have. And I hated myself and I wasn't able to open myself up to connect with her, you know, as a husband should. I blamed her and this is so common in my work, there's so much resentment and projection onto the wife. The wife becomes mother. My wife had become my mother. She wasn't trying to be my mother. She was trying to keep the ship you know, rowing and, and dumping out the water. We have two beautiful, incredible children. And um, she's my best friend. We met in college. I'll never forget. We met by the subway truck, the sandwich truck, you know, the little portable truck where you could get your subway sandwiches. I joked that I saw her reflection off the BMT sandwich and um, she had this black leather <laughs> jacket on. We were listening to the same music and I like literally said to myself, I'm going to marry this woman someday. Um, and I was in no position at that time to get married, but I knew there was something special about her and we became best friends um, before we started dating. She is my soulmate. She is my best friend. And um, I crapped all over that relationship and um, it was so bad, her intention. Now, she did look down at me. She looked down at me and she reached, extended her hand, said, husband, you're the father of my children. I want to help you. I don't think we're going to make it. I don't think we're going to make it, but I want to help you. And um, it was that, that act of kindness, that just showing of love moves me in a deep way and it has been my inspiration since then is helping other men heal from the lies and betrayals and the secrets they've kept from their wives and um, we just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary we've never been happier um, she was we do calls together for the wives that are in my program and uh, she said something two weeks ago that i'll never forget she said that she wouldn't go back and change a thing. She would not change a thing. And the reason why she said she wouldn't change a thing, because while she didn't like the pain, didn't like the suffering, didn't like the feelings of insecurity and not being good enough for her husband, it made her who she was. And it's because of those experiences that she was forced to grow in ways that she couldn't imagine. And clearly I was forced to grow in ways um, that I didn't realize, but it also forced us to grow together because when I was kind of woke up from that low point, like, wait a minute, there's gotta be other options. There's not one job. For, you know, I just, I had such blinders on, but we, yeah, we just celebrated 21 years and uh, we've never been happier, but it was, you know, I put that poor woman through hell. I'm going to jump in here because you use the phrase 
a low point a few times, Craig, both in, in relation to your experience professionally, personally, and in your marriage and how your wife felt. And one of the things that really uh, intrigued me about some of the information that you uh, sent to us, and it's very interesting in light of what Crucible Leadership talks about and what Warwick has gone through himself and what he he offers people through Crucible Leadership. But you said this, uh, which really struck me. Your lowest point is an incredible gift. Warwick talks about it, as I said at the top of the show, your Crucible experiences can be not the end of your story, but the beginning of a new chapter in your story if you learn the lessons from them. So it's extremely interesting. Um, if you hear Warwick tell his story, listeners have heard him tell his story very different practically, very different in detail from your story, Craig. Yet the emotions and the perspective that comes out of that from that low moment can come healing, hope, the best moments of your life. It's extraordinary how, and listeners, I want you to hear this too, your stories probably differ from Warwick's and Craig's both, but those emotions that you feel by digging in, by recognizing that your lowest point is an incredible gift, by recognizing that your crucible experience, if you learn from it and apply those lessons, can lead you toward a life of significance, is a truism. How do you guys react to that, knowing that your stories are so different, and yet the emotions behind them and the way that you crawled back from them, you clawed your way back from them, are very similar? Yeah, I mean, um, that is such a profound point that uh, our lowest moments can be a gift. It's want to just push pause for one second, because I want to make sure the listeners understand what was the motivations that led you to that low point? Because by understanding the motivations, it then helps the listeners understand how you bounce back from that. Yeah, what were the right, things, yeah. because you know you got the stuff on, on the top of the surf, surface, which was getting fired from a great job, drug addiction, you know, cheating on your wife. I mean, it was a variety of different challenges, but typically there's something beneath that that causes yeah. the behavior. And yeah. if we don't yeah. understand the behavior, we can't help stop well, that it, and you know turn the ship. So what was the underlying thoughts or motivations that led you to just that incredible low point that you went through? A great question, Warwick. It was, I felt trapped. I felt trapped. I saw my life unfold. Now I'm, you know, I'm peeking into the C-suite. You know, I'm now, I'm now in the room. I'm now in the room, the C-level executives. I'm not there yet, but if things go as planned, I am the chief compliance officer for this billion dollar company. So much excitement, so much opportunity. I don't want that. I never wanted that. I remember back in college, I want mom, dad, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. I want to teach people. No, you're, my dad was a teacher, became a very successful teacher, administrator, big soccer complex named after my father. And no, you're better than that. You know, be a lawyer, be a lawyer. And I had the natural skill set to be a lawyer and I loved it. I never felt like I was in charge of my destiny. I remember when we were putting together the specs of our new house together that my wife and I built in Massachusetts. I'll never forget how resentful I was about the granite countertops. It's like, this is what I'm working for. This is what I'm doing in my life. I was so unhappy. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. Just I was following that trajectory and I was so, so unhappy. I wasn't fulfilled. 
I felt trapped, Warwick. That's what it was. And this interesting, you know, getting back to Gary's question, it does that I can relate to. So it almost feels like you were living somebody else's dream. You know, every parent likes to think that their kids will do better than they did. But better often for some people means more status, more money, more prestige. Better doesn't have to be defined that way, but it sounds like for you, it's like, hey, I was a teacher. You need to do better than that from his perspective. Yes. I think teacher's a wonderful profession, but I get your dad's perspective. It almost felt like you were being forced into a role you didn't want to, and you were medicating the pain in a variety of different ways, including, you know, marital cheating and drugs and what have you. And is that like a fair comment? It was almost like you were being forced into a role you didn't want to be, and you were medicating the frustration. Yes, that's exactly right. There were these different parts of me. There was the part of me that went to work, that enjoyed analyzing, um, you know, compliance related issues because it's a fascinating field. It's where the law and the business intersect. And I was very good at it. I had a, um, an executive business background. I had a legal background. It was, it was perfect. It was perfect. It's exactly what someone with my skill set should do. But I was miserable. I did not feel fulfilled. I didn't like the job. No, you know, not the company. The company is a great company and thousands of people have very successful careers there. But I felt I wasn't me. And instead of finding me, I instead escaped from being me. And, and at various points in my life, I escaped from being me with drugs and prostitutes. And those two things collided in a big, ugly way. 10 years ago, because now not only was I trapped in a career, now I'm trapped in this job. I can't go anyplace else because I looked online. There's no other company that needed someone with my expertise. They were 80 miles away. And so I lost. I knew that I'd have to lose a big chunk of income. And I lacked the courage to say I am unhappy. I lack the courage to say I am unhappy. And I, that is the truth for so many of my clients. And I see it all the time. They lack the courage and the intestinal fortitude, intestinal fortitude to say, hey, I'm on the wrong track. I need to get back to my center to do something that's going to lift me up. And for me, you know, it took a rock bottom for that to happen. So that's back to where Gary was talking about this being a gift. I mean, the thought, the thought of me being a life coach with my background is preposterous. It's ridiculous. People laugh. People laughed when they heard it back then. And, you know, here we are eight years later um, with clients in 27 countries, a successful program, you know, world famous client base. It's um, it took that low point to you know, help me forge the path that was going to fulfill me and enrich me and inspire me. Yeah, and I want to hear in a brief second about that inspiration. But um, as you share your story, it's very different than mine, but yet there are similarities that a lot of our listeners would know growing up in a 150-year-old large family media business in Australia. The expectations are very clear. You will go into that, you will prepare yourself, and you will make the company even greater than it was before. Uh, you will do better than previous generations and you have no other options because, you know, uh, why wouldn't you want to be in a family media business that does great service to the community? Don't you care about your country, about your community? How could you not want to do that? So hence, Oxford, Wall Street, Harvard Business School, you know, I wasn't really that interested in business, to be honest. 
Still am not. You know, I'm more of a reflective mm-hmm. advisor. So it was like, but I never thought to rebel because I love my parents. And how could I let my parents down? The You know, not quite the nation, but how could I let people down? So, yeah, I was miserable and um, totally out of my depth. And uh, it was, yeah, grim. So everybody deals with that in different ways. But that sounds eerily similar. So I guess, I mean, I, obviously I have my own ways. I try to claw myself back. But how did you claw your way back? You know, you mentioned that, you know, failure can be a gift. How did you change your perspective to see it as a gift, to get your career back on track, your marriage back on track? How did you, because a lot of people are listening to you saying, that's irrecoverable. You can't recover from all those things. It's kind of game over. How did you bounce back? I found a mentor who had been through my struggles. So this was, I I had done a lot of counseling. I had done a lot of therapy in my life and that was valuable. That was valuable, but none of those people had walked in my shoes. And in fact, when push comes to shove, they probably had no idea beyond what they read about in their books, what I was going through. And I found somebody who, uh, his name was George Collins. He is a therapist in Walnut Creek, California. He specializes in working with men struggling with compulsive sexual behavior. And that's what mine was in the drugs, of course. And having, he did it, he was happy. So then maybe I can be too. And so having a mentor, having a therapist, a counselor, is critical. And as someone who provides those services, I acknowledge to clients how self-serving that statement is. Um, <laughs> uh, and it is what it is, you know, and, and it is what it is. So that was very important to me. Okay. So being a mentor, having a um, mentor, that yes. was a key. And um, you mentioned there's a sense of um, therapy almost in helping other people. I've certainly found that as I talk about failure and getting the old letter from folks as I did the other day from a woman classmate at Harvard Business School sharing about some of her business challenges and feeling like, hey, there's somebody else that's been there. She felt like she wasn't alone. I mean, very, you know, it's a different area, but um, so a mentor is helpful. So what were some of the other things that um, helped you get your life back on track? Like, I mean, your marriage, for instance, I mean, yes. I mean, so that, it was that's a miracle in of itself. There are many miracle marriages. In, it, yeah, know, it, it was. And in fact, my wife was done. She was pretty clear on her intentions. Um, she had been down this road before with me. Clearly, I wasn't somebody who could be faithful. She said that she was going to stick around to help me get back on my feet because I was the sole provider. I was the you know guy who made the money to feed the family. And so she was going to support me till I got back on my feet and then she'd separate. Then she'd end the marriage. And like a lot of things happened at that low point. A lot of things happened to me at that low point. So I found a mentor. I also started to see, find purpose, purpose, like, wait, there's something very liberating about being at that low point. In other words, there's only up, down was death. And I decided that I wasn't going to do that. I'm a father. What are you thinking, man? Snap out of it. There's got to be another way besides that. And I said to myself that as long as I am in the house, As long as I am in her presence, I'm going to do everything humanly possible to show her that I can be a kind 
caring, compassionate, loving husband and save the relationship. And that's what I did. And it wasn't easy. Clearly, I have intimacy issues. I have uh, issues around connecting. I was sexually abused as a child. So, um, you know, sexual anorexia, which means it just doesn't flow naturally when there's love involved. Stranger, boom, bada, bing, easy peasy. But when there's love and connection, that was a challenge for me. And we saw, you know, we met each one of those challenges together and had an incredible time in the process and there were no resources out there for the partners uh, of someone like me. And the only resources that were out there was either she's codependent um, or she's a co-addict. It was all framed around 12 steps, which is a treatment modality, you know, 85 years old for the invented for alcohol. That's now applied to other things that didn't resonate with me. It didn't resonate with her. So she started blogging and just sharing her experience, sharing her story. Well, that took off. You know, then came the Anderson Cooper show, then came the Katie Couric show, and then came Lifetime. Now I'm you know, kind of cramming a whole bunch of things together, but together we just had so much joy um, helping people. And that's how it all started. That's you, how it all started. One of the things I think you've said, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're at a low point, you know, marriage, business, all sorts of things going on, but you made a decision of the will. I'm not going to abandon my kids. Suicide's not an option. I am going to resurrect this marriage. I'm going to do whatever it takes to deal with these very difficult issues. Maybe 12-step programs are great programs. Maybe didn't quite fit your situation. There's no one-size-fits-all. But you and your wife were determined, and she was obviously incredibly courageous too, that you just felt like we're going to make a decision of the will to get through this, to get your career, life, marriage on track. Does that feel right that you made yeah. a decision? Yes. And yes. many we people made. would say, I mean, that's a silly decision because there's no hope. You just, even where you didn't feel like much hope, you just felt that you made a decision of the will. Was that like a key turning point for you? Key turning point. Key turning point. And as, you know, ridiculous as it sounded, in the moment, now, I mean, you've got to imagine the dinner tape. So my wife and I, just had been anonymously helping people. We just, you know, responding to comments on a blog, you know, just little, very basic stuff, but it was growing and there was momentum. And I saw a void that I could fill. I used to, you know, one of the things I got trained in was how to build curriculum. And I saw that the treatment modality that most people were using didn't address habits, didn't incorporate mindfulness, um, didn't really have a sense of purpose, didn't specifically create healthy in that area. And I said, you know what, I can build a course, I can build a better program that's going to move the right guy further faster. And so I, that is what drove me. But there was a time I'll never forget this time we're sitting there at dinner with her parents my wife's parents, now they know everything. They know rock bottom. They know that I had done it again. I had gotten fired again. And I remember looking over at my father-in-law to tell him that um, his daughter and I decided to be life coaches. And you could see the look on his face. Like, what are you <laughs> thinking? Right. <Are> you, <laughs> I got it. And, you know, he had 50 questions. Now, we had answers for all those 50 questions. He's a business-minded man. So I, we knew, you know, we were like, we're going to meet with an investor. We were prepared for those questions. 
but it was in making the decision together and then realizing that we had something special. There was a hole that we could fill and that hole was massive. And that really inspired us to keep pushing and keep chugging along to, you know, bring us where we are today, which is, you know, we're just getting warmed up today. So I want to talk about mindfulness, but I just want to recap for the listeners, a couple of key takeaways that I'm hearing so far. Uh, One is you made a decision of the will that these challenges, business and marital, were not going to define you. And the second was just the sense of purpose. I'm sensing you saying the healing power of purpose which I have a feeling might be part of mindfulness. So talk about the healing power of purpose and how that plays into the whole mindfulness program, which sounds amazing. So talk about purpose and mindfulness. And Yeah, the, the whole that. thing is mindfulness. Some of it's mindfulness in disguise. Um, when I talk about habits, um, other parts of my program, I'm explicit when I'm talking about traditional mindfulness. But one of the things that I've learned about human beings is that we are needs-seeking organisms. We, everything we do um, from what we say to what we do is a conditioned response to get needs met. And if, 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 if you can align that need with what you're great at and what you love to do, well, life is going to be a heck of a lot easier for you because as we all know, life is hard enough as it is to be doing something that you hate, where you don't feel fulfilled, uh, where you're never feeling good enough. And there's something very mindful, which means like, wait, what is it that I want to do that's going to contribute value to the world? And how am I going to use that to inspire other people? And it's really, I think, um, as you said, a mindful, it's a mindful principle because it's being mindful about what drives you, what feeds you, what inspires you. So that journey from rock bottom forced me to answer all those questions because I was not going to make that mistake again. And so that's where the mindfulness comes in. It's mindful around who I am, what do I love to do, how am I going to serve, and what feeds me. The Native American story of feeding the right wolf is a great inspiration to me. And it's an old story, but these old tales have an awful lot of science wrapped up in them and understanding, you know, what how you're going to feed that right wolf inside you and me helping clients get there. And of course me finding my own sense of purpose. It's like mindfulness at its core in the sense of um, how are you going to feed um, that part of you that needs significance, that needs loving connection, um, that needs community. So um, yeah, I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. No, you didn't. I'd love to hear personally, as I'm sure the listeners would, um, you know, what meeting those needs meant for you. But in addition to purpose, we all have needs, but trying to meet those needs in a constructive way that fits in with your innate gifting, passions, and talents to accomplish, and we use this term a lot, a life of significance, a life helping others. It feels like that was the key to mindfulness for you is meeting those needs in a positive way that's in line with what you love to do in a constructive way that feels like that was was key so what does it look like for you i mean what i mean you're wide a very specific way as we all are how did you meet those needs in a constructive way 
you know, in, in a way that helped you live a life of significance? So it was um, Martin Luther King's Jr.'s speech called The Drum Major Instinct had a massive impact on me. Of all the things that I listened to, there was something about him recognizing that we all have this drum major in us. And the drum major is the guy at the front of the parade with the shiny outfit waving the baton it, it, to, to some degree. Maybe we don't want to be him, but we want that attention and we want that significance. And there was something about that that, you know, I had gone the Eastern way, which is to not desire and I didn't want anything. And I took jobs that, you know, weren't wasn't very fulfilling because I just, you know, was thought I was being mindful, but I wasn't. I was still unhappy. I was still seeking. And it was literally that alignment of, you know, me realizing that if I have this need to be significant, to get positive attention, then I'm going to do it in the service of others. And it was like in that moment where like I, I have the skill set, I have the aptitude, I have the writing skills, I've got, you know, the personality. Like I just saw that all these things were in perfect alignment. And that's how I learned that I had to feed the right wolf. And that's when things you know, changed for me in a dramatic way. I recognized that I had these needs. It didn't make me a weak person because I want to be important and want to be significant. But if I am going to be an important, significant, do it in the service of others and uh, you know, be the biggest star in the world. But if you're helping other people, you know, rock on. So when you said the right wolf, to just summarize it in like a sentence or two, what does the right wolf look like for Craig Perra? You know, when Craig Perra is being who Craig Perra needs to be, kind of in service of others, what does it look like? Yeah, he is driving results where other people haven't. You know, my niche, Warwick and Gary, I'm in the sex and porn addiction field. And so my clients don't share on Facebook that they work with me. If they did, I'd be on Oprah. I'd be on Ellen mm. because I have worked with titans of industry, professional athletes, professional, you know, Hollywood icons. Like there's a list. There's a list that goes on and on. I'm just, hey, can one of you guys just put on Facebook how, how like life changing this program was? <laughs> but when my wolf is being fed, I'm taking what I've learned and I'm helping other people change their lives and driving results quicker than they were able to get someplace else, better and bigger than they were able to get someplace else. Because most of my clients come to me on the heels of inpatient stays, years and years and years of therapy. So that's when I'm on fire, when I'm driving those results. And that's what feeds me. As we say on uh, Beyond the Crucible, it's not time to land the plane yet, but the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. <laughs> and one thing that we want to make sure that we get to is for listeners who are hearing what you're saying, Craig, and who uh, believe that um, you may be able to help them in some way, how can folks engage with the mindful habit and with you? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Gary. Um, first is I have a podcast available on all major platforms called Sex, Afflictions, and porn addiction. So a whole bunch of great episodes there where I get, you know, speak my heart and my truth. Um, and some great interviews as well. 
alt my website is www.themindfulhabit.com there's some free training there there's ways to contact me there's a phone number i've got a receptionist who's ready for your call and um, so yeah go to the website and reach out if you are struggling and you need help uh, one question i have is obviously you mentioned you know you have a particular focus on people with um uh, sexual addictions, that kind of thing. But I have a feeling this mindfulness concept of living a life on purpose, feeding the right wolf, kind of being who were designed to be helping others, that that could help people with other addictions, even other challenges. Maybe they've no. got fired and they feel worthless. Uh, they're in the wrong slot around peg in a square hole. So I know you have a particular focus, but do you feel like that your whole mindfulness concept can help a broader group of people too? Yes, and so what I've done is I've taken um, certain aspects of mindfulness and made them very practical, being mindful of your triggers, of your thoughts. And quite frankly, for every addiction, you know what I think the real addiction is? The addiction is to our thoughts, those repeating thoughts over and over and over again. So I've got a five-year plan. I talked about that. All these people say how great I am. Warwick, you're absolutely right. My next product is a general addiction, um, addicted to your thoughts product. We're moving from my narrow, safe, secure place um, of sex and porn addiction into mainstream. And that's happening in 2020. We're super, super excited about that. Um, and that's, I think, going to open up just people to say, oh, yeah, Check this guy out. You know, now you can't do that because if you refer someone to me, a friend, the friend's going to say, wait a minute. Why, how do you know about him? You know, even if the principle is deep and profound. So, yeah, we've got a five-year plan and um, we're taking over and it's going to be really exciting to see where this goes. And it could lead to more people sharing on social media that they're working with you because then you'll be expanded and people won't know exactly what they're doing there. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. I mean, if, if I, I can't, but if I did share my client list or they shared that they worked with me, my life would be so dramatically different guys. It, it really is crazy, 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 crazy. You'd be like, Oh my God. Wow. And what I've done is I've created a system. It's called the mindful habit system. And it goes back to my corporate days, which is when I've got to teach a compliance item, I need a desired outcome. And I need learning objectives that are going to support that desired outcome. Those were things that were missing in my therapy. And those are things that my executive clients love. You know, they give them a framework, give them a structure, and they're off to the races. And so I built this system that's centered around mindfulness and habits. I see them as these two um, opposites almost. And, um, and, and teaching people to be mindful of, of their habits has led to significant life change. So it's, we really got some fun things in store for sure. If we have to sum this all up, um, somebody might be listening right now, they're at a low point, could be sexual porn addiction, addictions in general, or they could be just depressed, life has just not turned out the way they want to, maybe they're even thinking of suicide. Why should somebody at their lowest point see that as a gift? And as importantly, why should they have hope? Why, why should there be hope at your lowest point? Because it is like, think of the scene in the movie, right? And I, you know, I'm a I'm 49. So I remember the, the Rocky movie. Rocky is the boxer, the American boxer. And anybody who's seen that movie 
remembers that scene in the movie where he's down, he's down, he's down, he's been beaten again, he hasn't blocked the punches, he's getting older, and then there's this step, this, this conscious choice to get up, and there's that little shred of, of hope that at least that there's something is better than this. And so I tell people, you are going to look back on this low point with a sense of pride, with a sense of learning and reverence, where, where this low point where you're so out of alignment with who you think you are and who you want to be, that's your gift. This is your body telling you that things are off, and this is your inspiration and your motivation to get them back on. And that journey is incredible. Uh, to continue the Rocky metaphor, I think I just heard the bell ringing. Um, <laughs> I think our uh, our bout, our round uh, is done. The plane's going to land. Let me uh, summarize for you uh, listeners uh, what we've learned here today. And the first thing is the last point that Craig just made that Warwick asked Craig about, and that is your lowest point can be a gift. Warwick talks about it a lot. Crucible leadership talks about it a lot. From your crucible experiences can be birthed a change in trajectory of your life that will lead you to a better place, a new chapter. It can feel really bad when you're in it. It can feel devastating when you're in it. But if you learn the lessons of it, if you're mindful of it, as Craig talks about, you can write a new chapter to a new story that leads to significance and purpose. That's really takeaway number one. I think a second takeaway from what we heard Craig talk about today, and it's so encouraging to me in working with crucible leadership to see when crucible leadership concepts are mirrored in another person's concepts whose story couldn't be more different from Warwick's, but the bounce back and the insights are the same. And that's this. Craig said it takes courage to say, I'm on the wrong track for my life. It takes courage. And so we encourage you, listener, if you're in that place where you feel like you're on the wrong track, if you feel like your purpose is not being fulfilled, you can muster that courage and you can look to something different that more aligns with your what Warwick talks about, your vision and values, and what Craig has talked about, about habits and mindfulness. And then the last truly practical step that you can take, listener, is this. Craig mentioned it. It turned his life around. Warwick's talked about it too. Find yourself a mentor and not just any mentor, but look for someone, as Craig put it, someone who has walked in your shoes. When that moment happened for him, after failed attempts in therapy, failed attempts in bouncing back from these addictions that plagued him, that changed everything. He found a mentor who had walked in his shoes and that mentor led him to a place that allowed him to get to where he is now. Both Warwick and Craig are examples of people who have leveraged the power of a mentor who understands to turn their life around and to live a life of significance. So thank you, listeners, for spending time with us. And we have a couple of quick favors to ask of you. One, if you liked what you heard here today with Craig Para and Warwick talking about their crucibles and about how Craig came out of his through developing some mindfulness and some habits that changed the way he thought and acted. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you've enjoyed previous conversations, right now you're listening to this podcast on an app. There's a subscription button somewhere on that app. We would ask you, please, to subscribe to the app. 
helps you because you'll never miss an episode, helps us because it helps us get this message out, get our guests out to more and more people. And then the last thing that we would ask you to do, because we think it can help you along the journey that you're on. Warwick's been on a journey. Craig's just described his journey. We have at crucibleleadership.com an assessment you can take. It's like a three-minute assessment, very short. But what you'll get out of that is a readback, some feedback that will tell you where you are on your journey from your crucible experience to establishing that life of significance. Where are you at and where do you need to focus your efforts to make sure that you're successful in getting yourself towards significance as Craig has been and as Warwick has been and as so many of you have told us already, you're on that road and you're pursuing your passions, you're pursuing your purpose and you're off on a run to your life of significance. So until we get together next time, thank you for listening. And remember, your crucible experience is painful. It can be devastating. It can feel like it's the end of the world. You can feel like there is no hope. But as Craig pointed out here today, that low point is a gift. And if you lean into that gift, you learn the lessons of that gift, you will begin to write a chapter in your life that is far from the end of your story, but is a new story that will lead to purpose and significance. Mm -hmm.